This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 111th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast, which is presented by New York's Empire Hotel. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most talented and in-demand actors out there, David Oyelowo. The 40-year-old Brit of Nigerian descent has been making movies for more than a decade. He played parts of varying size in high-profile films like The Last King of Scotland, The Help, Lincoln, and The Butler, but it wasn't until Ava DuVernay's 2014 film Selma, in which he portrays Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and for which he received a Best Actor in a Drama Golden Globe nomination, that most people really sat up and took notice. Oyelowo since has been in the HBO movie Nightingale, for which he received an Emmy nomination for Best Actor in a Limited Series or TV Movie, and two films that premiered at September's Toronto International Film Festival, Ama Asante's A United Kingdom, in which he plays the first president of Botswana, who married a white woman, and Mira Nair's Queen of Kotway, in which he plays a Christian outreach worker in Uganda who mentors a young chess prodigy. Over the course of our conversation at the Empire Hotel in New York, where Oyelowo currently is starring opposite Daniel Craig in an off-Broadway production of Othello, the actor and I discuss the personal travails and professional breaks that preceded his success, how George Lucas fought to make the movie Red Tails, in which he plays one of the Tuskegee Airmen, which then brought him to the attention of Steven Spielberg, who cast him in Lincoln, why he has such a close professional and personal relationship with Ava DuVernay, with whom he made both Middle of Nowhere and Selma, and why he makes a point of working with female directors as often as possible, how his cinematic journey through the African-American experience prepared him to play Dr. King in Selma, a part he feels God intended him for, why he was hurt by what many felt was an Oscar snub of that performance, and what he feels was at the root of that, and why he's so proud to be a part of Queen of Cotway, Disney's first live-action film with an all-black cast and set and shot in Africa. There's, of course, much more on top of that as well. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. David, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Of course. To begin with, we always just ask, for the record, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Well, I was born in Oxford, England, and I lived there till the age of two, so I don't really remember it, but most of my life was spent, my early life anyway, in London. And my parents, up until quite recently, ran a taxi cab firm in London, but they are now retired and living in L.A., which nice. is where I also live. Yes. Now, the last name Oyelowo. Yes. What does it mean, and what does it mean in Nigeria? So literally, what does it mean, and then what is... It's a big name in, in Nigeria, right? Well, I mean, the name itself, Oyelowo or Oyelowo, as it's um. pronounced in the Yoruba tradition, means a king deserves respect. And with, you know, Nigerian names, Yoruba names specifically, they tend to have some meaning to them. Oye means king, ade also means king. So whenever you hear that word prefacing, you know, 
Adewale or Oyelowo, <laughs> they tend to mean that there's some kind of royalty in there. So I guess it, it sort of has uh, cultural Nigerian significance from that point of view. And, and, and your family is of, of that descent, right? I mean, they're, they're royal family in Nigeria, right? Yeah, my grandfather was the king of a part of Oyo state called Awe. And yeah, he, he, he was the king. There's, there's, no, there's no shying away from it. Right. And so that knowledge, even though, you know, you've joked in other interviews, you go back there, it doesn't necessarily get you very far. But that knowledge that it, it, it that you kind of come from that heritage as you've gone through the world, how has that impacted you, if, if at all? Oh, of course it impacts you. You know, just the uh, self-possession, I think, you have when you know you're from a royal family and you also have family members who have that bearing about them. So it's it's meant that a low self-esteem is not something I struggle with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's something I'm very proud of. So your parents came from Nigeria to England, from what I understand, because they were sort of in a way eloping from a mixed marriage that wasn't approved by of by everyone in a, in a sense there of different is it different backgrounds in Nigeria yeah I mean people may not know this but even within a country like Nigeria there are prejudices that that exist from tribe to tribe mm-hmm. and, and my, my my dad is Yoruba my mom is Igbo and uh, certainly when they were getting married in the 70s for a Yoruba man to marry an Igbo woman was kind of taboo uh, let alone the fact that he was was from royal lineage and she was effectively a commoner so that made it doubly (laughs) troublesome for them and so yeah you know them moving to the UK was to get away from all the uh, opposition they were facing right and so as a result you're born in UK you go back as you as you referenced at something like six or seven to Nigeria Mm. why then think at the age of 13 did Mm. you come back to the UK with your family, obviously. And what was that reception like at that time, which is a tough time for any kid, you know, you're sort of figuring out who you are. For you, Mm. it was doubly weird because just of of sort of probably literally having to figure out what what you were. Are you Nigerian? Are you British? Are you what? So can you talk about that time? Yeah, well, you know, being in Nigeria for me from the age of 6 to 13 was pretty formative for me. I really loved my time there. It was amazing to grow up in a culture where I wasn't a minority, where most of the people around me looked like me. And that in and of itself was very informative in terms of my development as a person. But the reason we moved is because a military government came into power who were incredibly disruptive to everyday life. And you couldn't get anything done pretty much without having to bribe the police, having to deal with corruption at work. A real culture of corruption set in uh, and was largely brought about by this very, like I say, disruptive military government that came in. And and my, my parents felt it was not the environment to raise three sons and to thrive as a family. And so we moved back to the UK. But that had its own sort of traumatic elements because, you know, I'd now grown up in a culture where respect for elders was paramount, respect for education was paramount. You know, I was really gaining real love for for being in Nigeria. And then suddenly there we were in the UK in the cold and a very, very different cultural environment. But, you know, you, you adapt. And I think that 
that ability to adapt is one of the reasons I, I, I think I went on to become an actor. For sure. But but just not to harp on this, but one thing that I, I read, which I want to ask you about, is this idea of, again, having to confront sort of intolerance there where, well, let me ask you this. What did it mean when you were called a certain name, like uh, I guess the name was Coconut? What did yeah. that mean? Yeah, you know, black on the outside, white on the inside is is what's the the, the, the reference there. I think it's uh, the American equivalent is uh, to be called an Oreo, and uh, yeah, that was incredibly hurtful. I was I was bullied for being respectful to my teachers, for being aspirational, and and not doing what a lot of the uh, other, to be perfectly frank, black kids uh, in my school were were doing at that time and it was a, it was a really confusing time for me because the notion was that to be education orientated to be respectful was to be trying to be white and the part of north london that i was growing up in was a very rough area and a, a lot of the black kids in my school were more interested in in the negative side of things really and it's a real shame the reason i'm i'm sort of stuttering at it is because it's it's something that is such a shame it's a society at the time it was a society it was sort of a self-fulfilling societal prophecy in a sense where you have inner city black kids who are being uh, disrespected culturally and so therefore they just feel a need to live up to what society says they are but having grown up outside of that society I didn't subscribe to those stereotypes and so therefore I guess I came in and represented a different kind of young black kid and as a result got bullied for it and the, the way the reason why you were able to withstand the various pressures that could have made you fall in line in, in a bad way were what your parents my parents absolutely you know uh, my, my dad in particular would say to me you know I, I, I had an incident where I was punched and spat at and went home with a swollen jaw and and my, my dad basically said to me, do you, you, you know who you are? Is what they say about you true? I said, no. And he said, so hold on to who you know you are. And that's what, what I did. And, uh, you know, my faith as well is a, is a, is a big part of that as a, as a Christian, knowing that to fight back, to hold hate, to become bitter are not things to do. And so that, that really helped me as well. If it's not too personal to ask, I wonder, because you've, you've spoken about it before, that at 16 you were born again Christian at that point in your life. That's mm. what happened, if anything, that, that brought that about at that time, because that's in the midst of what we're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I was brought up a Baptist. My, my, my parents raised my brothers and I in the church. And at the age of 16, I uh, realized I pretty much was going to church purely because my parents did. I didn't particularly believe in it. I didn't particularly enjoy being at church. I found it very boring. But, you know, ha having been raised with this notion of God for so long, I now say I, I made the mistake of saying, okay, God, if you exist, I'm going to go to a different church because I find my parents' church interminably boring, <laughs> and you have three months to turn up for me. The truth of the matter is... God called my bluff and turned up for me in a very real and undeniable way, in a way that 
was outside of the Bible, outside of my Christian upbringing. It was just a very, very personal indication to me of how much I was loved by him. And it was confusing. It's even confusing to say it here because we're talking something spiritual as opposed to something that is to do with the physical mind. But it was so real to me that it was the point beyond which my life changed forever. Wow. Well, around that time, maybe even before it, I think we have a pastor's daughter to thank for you discovering (laughs) your professional path in life, if that was your personal. So what exactly happened that led you, who had no real background, as far as I know, at that point in acting, you weren't like a theater geek in elementary school or something. So now what happened that brought you into acting in the first place? Yeah, my, my route to acting was very different from a lot of people, which is, you know, often it's I wanted to do this since I was five or whatever. That just wasn't the case for me. When we had moved back to the UK, we were going to this church in North London and the pastor's daughter worked the overhead projector and I was just completely obsessed <laughs> with with her hair in really? particular. Just I Yeah, because that was all I looked at for an hour <laughs> yeah, the- each Sunday uh, was her working the overhead projector. And then one day, you know, after months and months, my only prayer was, please look at me, please <laughs> talk to me. And one day, I will never forget it, even as I'm saying it to you now, I, I, I always envisage it in slow motion, by the way. She, 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 walked, <laughs> she walked up to me and asked me to the theatre. And I thought it was a date. <laughs> and uh, I turned up to Finsbury Park tube station with a pink rose stolen from my mum's garden. And as I approached her, the look on her faith clearly showed that she did not think this was a date. <laughs> How old were you um, then at this point? I was, I was 14, 14 15. Okay. Yep. Uh, 14. And so I dropped the rose, <laughs> kept my approach towards her. We didn't really say much on the tube. as And then and then we arrived at the National Theatre and we didn't go into the front doors. We went through the stage door. And then we went up to this room and it was filled with other teenagers who were all warming up. I now know that at the time I just thought she'd taken me to a cult <laughs> because they were making very odd sounds, moving in very odd ways. And there was a lady in front of them who they were copying. And so I thought the pastor's daughter is part of a cult. And anyway, it was a youth theatre group where they were low on boys and to ingratiate herself to the director, she took a boy. She recruited uh, you. Yeah. To, to build up the numbers. <laughs> and you, for you, it was an immediate attraction to what it turned out you were actually doing there or was it? did it take a while for you to care about acting? Oh no, it took a while. I mean, I was a fairly shy kid and, and I purely kept on going because I liked her. Yeah. And and what actually happened is we were we were preparing to do this show and one day, again, it involves the tube or the subway as we call it here, there was a, a tube strike and the three guys who were being positioned to play the lead were stuck on trains. And I had been going to this thing for about five, six months, uh, sitting in the corner, not saying much. I was clearly going to be in the chorus, not in the actual <laughs> anything speaking. And the, the, I was the only boy who had turned up on time. And the director said, oh, David, just just read in while, while we wait for the others to come. And clearly for months I'd been thinking in my head how I would do it. Right. So I did it how I would do it. And then there was complete silence. I thought, oh, no, I have completely messed that up. So, so awful. And then within a week I was cast as the lead. You were the replacement. That was I was. Great. I was. So as you neared the end of high school, what did your family assume your future would look like? And what did you start to imagine your future would look like? 
Well, certainly nothing that involved the arts, let alone acting. Uh, you know, my, my dad, academia is everything. And he has three sons, and he wanted a lawyer, a doctor, and an engineer. <laughs> and I was going to be the lawyer. Are you sure he's not a Jewish mother? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I should, I, maybe I should do my DNA yeah. to see if there's some Jewish in there. But, uh, yeah, so, so that was clearly going to be the path. And I had... You know, sort of on the, the, all this whole interest in the theater and going to this youth group and, you know, was a, something my dad was not aware of at all. And basically what happened is I, I, I kept on going to that youth theater with the, the, where my pastor's mm -hmm. daughter was. Then I, I took it as a subject from uh, in high school. And then I had a teacher uh, called Jill Foster who really encouraged me and I was all set to go to Oxford Brooks University to do law and she stopped me again outside a tube station <laughs> this was Holloway tube station right. and said David I I really think of of everyone I've taught recently you could make a profession of this and she helped me with my application to drama school which was unbeknownst to your parents. completely unbeknownst yeah completely unbeknownst and I got a into the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, and I got the Nicholas Heitner Scholarship. Amazing. And so there I was. I had a place at Oxford Brookes University, and I had a place at Lambda. And so I had to have the big chat with my dad <laughs> about this. And basically what swung it was the scholarship. Because, you know, I said, so I went in and I said, Daddy, so I've got into this school, and it's an acting school, but I've got a scholarship. <laughs> And he, and he goes, ah, they have given you, ah, my son, the scholar. <laughs> so, so as long as he could call everyone back home in Nigeria and say, my, my son is a scholar, did you know? And then the minute it came to the subject, we sort of move on very quickly. And for him, the whole acting thing was going to be something I would outgrow very quickly. But it wasn't until he saw me as Henry VI at the uh, Royal Shakespeare Company. After that you've was come out of your after three After I've come now. out. And then within about two years, I was at the RSC. And he, he came to watch me as that. And when he had come to the UK in the 60s and 70s, he had suffered a lot of racism and, and prejudice. And the notion of his son getting to play the King of England was so far away from any kind of thought he he could even dare to have. And so I remember at the stage door after seeing me in Henry VI, part one, two, and three, he saw all three in oh a day. Gosh. How many yeah. hours? 12 hours, wow. 12 hours of Shakespeare, oh, which man. if you know my dad, you know, him getting through a two minute monologue <laughs> without falling asleep is kind of miraculous. Right. He was engaged. So he was engaged. And I and I saw him in the front row the whole time. My wife was sat next to him with her elbow ready to nudge him if he fell asleep. <laughs> uh, she never had to nudge him. And at the stage door, he said, I cannot believe they allowed a black man to play the king of England. And it was my son. <laughs> And he's been my biggest fan ever That's since. That's great. And yeah. we should note, by the way, that you really were a trailblazer in that sense because I don't believe anyone else on the British stage, any other person of color, had played a, a king prior to that, right? Not at the Royal Shakespeare Company, no. Yeah. You know, so it, I, it wasn't something I knew when I was cast, but it, it sort of became a bigger deal than I anticipated. But yeah, it, it, it opened doors for others, and that was great. make an issue of that? Was there yes, a yes. Unfortunately, they did. I, I remember one Oxford Don in particular who took to the newspapers to say, we open ourselves to ridicule if we have black actors playing these kind of roles. Because, of course, Henry VI was 
white, which if he knew anything about Shakespeare, he would know that the original women in those plays were played by men. Yes. Uh, so Shakespeare didn't really subscribe <laughs> yeah, right. to who was, you know, the, the actual person. Right. Either. Anyway. Now, at that point in your life, did you ever imagine that screen acting would be a part of your career? No, not really. I mean, you know, the, the thing for me is that I didn't really come... For so long, acting didn't feel like a proper job, you know, because I'd had it drilled into me that real work involved books, involved a nine-to-five job, and, you know, was was nothing to do with the arts. So, you know, even even when I was at drama school, I just, this is too much fun. You can't get paid for having this much fun. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the actors I admired were doing such transcendent work. I'm talking about Daniel Day-Lewis. Mm-hmm. Sidney Poitier, Denzel Washington, Sean Penn. I, I just couldn't, you know, if, I, if you watch My Left Foot, which I did when I was, I don't know, 13, 14, you cannot join the dots between you and that kind of performance. So I, I, I didn't know. I, I sort of admired it from afar, and, and, and it remained something very elusive to my mind as anything I would be able to do. Was the first notable screen opportunity when you did the series Spooks? Yes. Yes. And uh, we should say, so you're playing a MI5 officer, Danny Hunter. This is a British series that ran from 2002 to 2004. It was a big deal, right? This was a high-profile project, right? It was, and it was kind of groundbreaking for its day. You know, at that time in the UK, there were little to no shows on TV that were being headed up by younger actors it was it was sort of more middle-aged actors in in the kind of tv that was very sort of sunday night cozy up with some hot chocolate type of stuff so you know even the 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 bond movies were not as popular at that time you know the cold war was over espionage spydom all of that that wasn't really on the table it wasn't hip at that time to be to to have that kind of drama so what happened is we Somehow the BBC commissioned this, we shot it. Myself, Matthew McFadden and Keely Hawes, who headed up the series, couldn't believe we had been given this opportunity. And then while we were shooting, 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly espionage, spying, you know, that whole thing became not just something that people were interested in and again, but it felt newsworthy yeah, it's it like felt 24 back ex- here, ex- exactly yeah. exactly right and so yeah it was a, a huge show for the time that sort of caught the mood and, and the zeitgeist and as a result after that came to the end of its run now you're and maybe even in the midst of it i know you started to do some some film roles but pre-2007 when you now moved your family to the united states what was the state of your film career up to that point, and how did you feel about your opportunities up to 2007 when you decided to make this move to the United States? Well, you know, what what became apparent is that even though I was being afforded the pretty classic trajectory of any British actor coming out of drama school, going to the Royal Shakespeare Company for three years, doing a TV show for three years, after Spooks, it became evident that what the kind of opportunities that would and should be being offered someone who was doing the kind of work I was doing at that time was going to start drying out for a black actor. And that's because of how prevalent period dramas are for 
us in the UK. So you think of Matthew McFadden, for instance. He went to play Darcy on right. to play Darcy in in Pride and Prejudice. Uh, Keely Hawes has done a number of uh, of period dramas. Uh, they don't put black people in those in, in the UK. I guess you guys didn't exist. Uh, but well, apparently, yeah, yeah. apparently, which of course is not true. Right. But you know, they 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 don't put us in those. No. And so my the, the classic trajectory, the Ray Fiennes trajectory, the Jude Law trajectory, the Judy Dench trajectory, you know, which is theater, TV, film, and then you get to mix it up. Mm-hmm. You know, art for black actors in the UK, you can do the, the theater, you can do the TV, and then it starts to run dry around the film side of things. And so I realized in order to keep a trajectory that I was being afforded going, I had to change things up. And so, you know, uh, The Last King of Scotland came along and and I I played a fairly peripheral role in that, but it whetted my appetite enough to to know that, okay, I want to do this. Not enough of this is being done in the UK. Where's the other place on the planet where someone like I uh, gets to thrive? And that's part of why I now live here. Was there a model of who you hope to follow in the United States? Yeah, of course. Uh, You know, Denzel Washington's a, a huge hero of of mine and in many ways his career is is typical of what i'm saying you know the 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 roles that brought him a certain degree of prominence are also historical mm-hmm. uh, figures whether it's glory or or playing steve biko or malcolm x you know those tend to be the kind of roles that because they're tough to do in in all honesty to 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 not only bear the weight of the pressure of playing someone like, like that but to hopefully pull it off i think sets you apart as an actor and if you're not having those opportunities where you're from, then you've got to go to where they're they're being. Yeah, Yeah. where they are. So you get here and you kind of had a a little bit of a a rude welcome in the sense that 2007 was, for a number of reasons, not a wonderful time to show up in America or Hollywood or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. It was, well, it was was good and bad. 2008 was the bad year. (laughs) And if we had left it a year, we would not have done it because that year, of course, was synonymous with not only the meltdown of the world, financially (laughs) speaking, but a writer's strike that kind of brought Hollywood to a halt. So in many ways, 2007, which is when we actually moved, was the perfect time because I don't think we would have done it if we'd waited a year. You would have been deterred, We we would have stayed in the UK. So how much do you think that being born outside of America has shaped the actor that you are in America? One of your heroes that you mentioned, Sidney Poitier, also was born outside of the country. Mm. And I wonder if you feel any kinship or, or sort of understanding of why he was able to break out of the mold and why perhaps you've been able to. Is there something about, again, not being from the place where you are now living, which was similar with your childhood, Mm. that allows you to avoid being put into any kind of box imposed by others? Well, you know, I think when when you look at what Sidney Poitier achieved when he did it, it still, to this day, is unthinkable. I mean, his achievements even now are elusive for, you know, black male actors in, in America. And um, I think a huge part of that is the fact that he grew up 
in a society where he wasn't a minority and he therefore had a self-possession that comes from not just thinking it but knowing that he is worthy of any and every opportunity on offer and that's what I had living in Nigeria when Everyone looks like you when the highest office in the land is something that could be yours if you wanted it, or certainly any and every opportunity is, is, is on offer if you're going to work hard enough. That does something to your, your mindset. And I think it's challenging when you grow up as a minority, whether you're a woman, whether you're a disabled person, whether you're a person of, of color, you know, that it affects your stance going into every single day, which is, okay, I've now got to go and fight to get what, what's mine. It's not that Sidney Poitier didn't get up every morning thinking that, but there is a slight mind shift, I think, which I know I share, which is that I don't think any of the negative stuff that others may think of me on the basis of my color. I think that's very tough to do when you are surrounded by it, when you are born into it, when you're fighting against it every single day, not to adopt a boxer's stance going into every situation you encounter. And that's exhausting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I do think that growing up without a minority mentality is incredibly useful when you're tackling an industry like Hollywood. Because <laughs> as any woman will tell you, as any person of color will tell you, it is, it, it's a challenge mm -hmm. every day if you are not part of the status quo. So pre-Selma, which was 2014, you... I would imagine coincidentally, but it's essentially embarked on a journey through the African-American experience mm. cinematically. You were, let's just remind people, a Union soldier in Lincoln. This is not chronological, but just it's it's chronological in the era of when these events would have taken place, but not in terms of when you made these films. But a Union soldier in Lincoln, a Tuskegee Airman in Red Tails, civil rights activist in The Butler, civil rights era preacher in The Help, story, uh, you know, at the center of a story about present day incarceration in middle of nowhere mm. and on and on. Is it just coincidental that you ended up in those sorts of parts or were you in a way consciously or unconsciously seeking to understand the African-American experience through, through a film? I think it's a, it's a, it's a two pronged answer that truly delves into the question you've, you've, you've asked me there. I think President Obama's presidency created an environment in this country whereby I think there was genuine curiosity as to how did we get here? We now have an African-American president. How did we get here? So Lincoln, Selma, The Butler, The Help, uh, Middle of Nowhere are all films that in their own unique ways answer that or certainly give voice to giving historical context to the African-American experience in, I like to think, a, a very full way. For me personally, from a divine point of view, you know, being a, a man of faith as I am, I truly believe that those opportunities were given to me in preparation for playing Dr. King. To have played a Unionist soldier in, and, and the scene I have with Daniel Day-Lewis at the beginning of that film is 
that that scene takes place in February of 1865. And that soldier asks the present day president, when are we going to get the vote? And we sort of had this weird moment on Selma. It was acute deja vu for me when I'm sat in a prison cell with Coleman Domingo, with him playing Ralph Abernathy. And in that film, it's February of 1965, a hundred years later, 40-odd presidents later, and I'm asking the exact same question. When are we going to get the vote? And that hundred years to have the same actor asking the same question, you know, that's not lost on me at all. And uh, and then you throw in Red Tails as well, you know, the prejudice the Tuskegee Airmen faced and just how many Tuskegee Airmen have, have approached me and talked to me about how happy they are that that film exists, let alone the butler or Selma. A, a British actor, a black British actor, should not be being afforded that opportunity <laughs> outside of what I deem to be something divine going on. And so all of that definitely went into what I feel I was able to do in playing Dr. King. And what's extra amazing is that when did you first, even though Selma was released in 2014, you first heard about Selma Mm. before any of those other movies, right? Yes. Yes. Only a few months after we moved here. We moved to L.A. in May of 2007, and I first read Selma July of 2007. And on the 24th of July, 2007, Mm -hmm. felt God tell me that I would play that role. I didn't get told that it would be five directors (laughs) on and and seven odd years later. But yeah, that that was the the beginning of that sort of divine journey. Amazing. So just to very briefly touch on a few of those that led up to it, if we can just... I mean, the thing with Red Tails, which was made by George Lucas Hmm. and paid for with his own money, right? Because nobody else would finance that. Yeah. How did that even come about? How how was he aware of you? And then in a way, didn't that lead to Lincoln? Oh, yeah, 100% it did. Well, you know, I did a, a, a film called Who Do You Love? in which I played Muddy Waters, and it's a film no one saw because it clashed with another film called Cadillac Records, which is the same subject matter, same characters, basically. And that film came out before ours, and, and ours effectively got shelved. But I had footage of myself as Muddy Waters, and Anthony Hemingway has told me since that, you know, seeing me, uh, you know, because I go into a room to audition, and, you know, I talk like this. I'm nothing <laughs> like... Nothing Nothing like uh, Muddy Waters or probably a Tuskegee Airman. And so him seeing that footage was part of what convinced him that I could transform into this character of Joe Lightning. So that opportunity, which, as you say, George had to finance him himself. I mean, he basically says that watching the dogfights, you know, these, uh, these airplane mm-hmm. combat that, that the Tuskegee Airmen engaged in was the inspiration for for the the fights in in Star Wars, and so he had always he had watched those as inspiration for those the, the combat fights in in Star Wars, and so he had always wanted to to make that film. But like you say, no one wanted to make it. Partly why it was such a struggle to make is that you need young black actors to do it. So as much as I love Denzel, as much as I love Sam Jackson, as much as I love Morgan Freeman, they can't be in it. (laughs) And so the truth of the matter is it takes a little longer for Mm -hmm. for African-American actors to gain the notoriety that 
make studios want to put them in movies. And so it was a constant struggle. Who are the 20-somethings that you're going to get to put in this movie that the studio are going to sanction? That's why it took 20-odd years for George to do it, and that's why he ended up just going, I'm going to hire who I want, make the film the way I want to do it, and that's how we got the film And so he had seen the Muddy Waters footage, or how had he known about you specifically? Anthony Hemingway made him aware of me. Anthony Hemingway directed the film. I went in and auditioned like everyone else. And yeah, I I know for a fact George saw the audition and and liked it. But as you say, you know, it it was doing Red Tails that led to... George was screening the film for Steven Spielberg to get his notes on, on, on Red Tails. And I'm told that Steven took notice of my performance and that was soon after that I got the call about Lincoln. And so one of the things you've said about Lincoln, even though it was basically one day of work, one scene, you would rather do that than star in you know the central role in a film that nobody's going to care about because for you it's more the what you can take away from the experience. That's what you're looking for when you're deciding whether or not to do something. Yeah. You know, I have this rule of the three P's. It's the part, the project, and the people. And the most important of those elements for me is the people because I think as an actor, you have to be aware that you are never going to stop learning and being the best actor you can be is going to absolutely be reliant on the people you work with and what you learn from them. And never more was that more apparent to me than my one day of filming with my acting hero, Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> to be around him, to act opposite him, to have a glimpse into his process was a huge part of what I stole to play Dr. King. It really was indicative to me of the level of sheer dedication needed to play that kind of role. You know, of course, his process is is much fabled and legendary, and but to see it up close, you see why it is legendary, because it, it is something... To behold, he's going to hate me for, for further <laughs> for further you know accentuating the mystique around his process. But it really is exemplary, and, it, and it's something I hugely respect. And I learned, yeah, as as you say, I learned more from him in that one day than I would six months on a film that was was meaningless and with people who uh, are not very good at what they do. And as it turns out, if somebody had only seen the trailer for Lincoln, they would have thought. You're the you're the main guy anyway because it's amazing, right? I mean, you're narrating the whole thing. Yes. Well, I, yeah, I, I definitely made the most of that opportunity. Yeah. Let's put it that way. So you had first dealt with Lee Daniels on the Paperboy. Well, actually, my first interaction with him was Selma. I mean, he was the one who cast me as Dr. King. After, Way before it was ever going to be made. Yeah, yeah. Well, in two thousand, what had happened is when I read it in 2007, there was an, a different director on at the time, then there was another different director, then there was another different director, and then Precious happened for Lee. Yeah. And the next film he was going to do was Selma, and he cast me, much to my shock, as Dr. King, and we were meant to go and do that. And the film, not unlike with George and Red Tails, we just couldn't get this thing made. And so... What was the issue? The issue was always that it was felt, because of comps, you know, in the marketplace, that the film should be made for about 20% 
less than it needed to be made for. This is a film set in 1965 with horses and tear gas and extras, and it's a period film. It needs a certain amount of money, and it's Dr. King, people. We need to do this and do it well. Right. And so any and every director who came along who was talking about a realistic budget were being lowballed and and told well you know there isn't a track record of these films doing well at the box office and so therefore you know black doesn't travel so it's you know it's not going to do well abroad black people don't want to see black pain so they're probably not going to come white people don't want white guilt so they're probably not going to come so you know we've got to make it at a certain budget level and that honestly is is what it was Otherwise, why do we live in a world where a J. Edgar Hoover movie gets made before a Dr. <laughs> King movie? I mean, there's just no other explanation. Right. And so that, that's, that's what it was. And so Lee, as a result, fell out? He fell out because, you know, he just knew he wouldn't be able to do a good job at the, at the budget level being, being profit. So we, we, we did The Paperboy mm -hmm. instead, and then we did The Butler, mm -hmm. which was also a bear to, to get off the ground, and, and we had to cobble the money together from all sorts of places, but, you know, we got it done. That one must have been a little of a full circle moment for you because here, seven years after The Last King of Scotland, where, as you mentioned, you were sort of a peripheral character in that, now you're you're there again with Forrest mm. in a you know toe to toe for a lot of this in a character that is so developed in a sense that we're seeing him age from 17 to 57. Mm. We're seeing him be sort of like a zealot of the civil rights movement. Mm. And for you, I got the sense that up to that point, maybe that was one of the more meaningful that you had characters that you'd had a chance to play or, or projects to be a part of. Right. Because for a lot of Americans, this was a part of their own history that they didn't know. It was huge for me. I, I have, I owe Lee Daniels so much by way of thanks, uh, by way of just, he turned the corner for me. He helped me turn the corner in casting me as Dr. King and in giving me the opportunity to, as you say, go from 17 to 57 in a, in a movie that's an opportunity I'd been afforded in playing Henry VI, mm -hmm. who also goes from being a teenager to being later on in, in his years. And I very much, again, from a divine point of view, feel like Henry VI was my preparation for, for playing. Did you uh, use makeup Lewis, in that one, Lewis though? Because it's amazing that as Louis Gaines, you basically did not use makeup, right? Well, yeah, that, that's why I say it was preparation, because I felt when we did Henry VI that even though I age 40-odd, 45-odd years, that... You know, age is a mindset. It is something that can be projected from within. Of course, there are physiological indicators of, of age. But an audience, the minute they feel artifice, they disengage from the spiritual life of the character. And if you followed a character from the age of 14, which is what was in, in Henry VI, and you start seeing makeup, you start sort of seeing the seams of what's being done. So I insisted on not having makeup there, and let's see if we can do it with the acting, and, and we did that successfully. And so, you know, we, we did that as much as we could with 
with uh, the butler also, you know, Lee didn't want any makeup anyway, and we only employed makeup really in the the later years, mm-hmm. where of course he's in his fifties, where you know, as good as I like yeah. to think I am, <laughs> you know, a lot of, a lot of help. I can't yeah. conjure <laughs> eye bags just by you know really squeezing. Right. So uh, it was an indicator to me, and I had to convince Lee. I mean, uh, there were points where he was thinking he would need separate actors to do it, but you know, we did some camera tests, and up until the very last moment, he was still skeptical. But uh, he had know, some imagination although i'll tell you it was funny because we had naomi harris do this and i'm pretty sure that she was saying she had wanted to be in precious oh right. as precious oh really <laughs> and he said there's a that's where the limit of my imagination right ends that was not gonna be happening. Right. but so <laughs> but one last thing about the butler is that you had to make some remarks about a person who you david think very highly of Sydney oh, Poitier. Yeah. That was tough. <laughs> that was tough? That was really tough. Yeah, I mean, my character in the film disparages Sydney Poitier as an Uncle Tom, which is a highly offensive phrase. But, you know, the only way I was able to justify it is the fact that it was a very real sentiment by certain elements at that time in this in this country. And And, you know, Having been called a coconut myself, mm-hmm. which is in the same hemisphere yeah. as, as as sort of uh, being called an Uncle Tom, you know, I could understand where that character was coming from. But, you know, what really enabled me to be able to stomach it is you really see this character evolve through the course of the of the film. And I don't think he would subscribe to that same notion of, no. of Sidney Poitier by the end of the movie right. as he did when he was in the, in the red-hot eye of his youth. Um, but, you know, not only was it tough to say those words, but a fellow admirer of Sidney Poitier playing my mother the lovely Oprah Winfrey yes. was in the scene. So we were burnt. Every time I said, I could just see her inner wince. It was an absolute nightmare. Right. But, uh, but there you go. I suffered from my art. Yes. Now, when along the line did you first meet Ava DuVernay? And why do you think you two hit it off to the extent that you have? I met Ava DuVernay through another divine circumstance. I was sat on a plane next to a guy who was watching Spooks on his iPad. <laughs> and he pressed pause, looked at me, said, is that you I'm watching? I said, yes, that is me. <laughs> You're watching. He said, a friend of mine just asked me to put $50,000 into this film called Middle of Nowhere. Is that a good idea? I said, well, tell me more. He said, it's being directed by this lady, Ava DuVernay. Coincidentally, I'd just seen Ava on CNN talking about I Will Follow, her first film, and how she'd financed it, and how she'd started a distribution company in order to get the film out there. I was so impressed by what I saw. And so when he said her name, that really caught my attention. I said, let me read the script. I'll give you my opinion. I read the script. Not only did I think he should put the 50000 in, I called her up and I said, I need to be in your movie. Right. And that's how our relationship began. And as it turns out, she had been thinking about you anyway, right? She had, she had. But she'd seen me doing, you know, films like Rise of the Planet of the Apes or The Butler and, you know, bigger films by comparison to Middle of Nowhere and thought this is something I wouldn't entertain. But what she wasn't realizing is that the script was absolutely the the kind of script for which I had moved to America you know being such a big fan of Spike Lee especially those early movies like she's got to have it and do the right thing and you know this writing had that feel to it it was 
people who are outside of my experience and culture, but I felt like I knew them. Mm. And uh, that's what she had put on the page. So I was like, I said to her, you're crazy to think I wouldn't do this. But she wasn't wrong, you know. You know, I, 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 there, were, there were representatives of mine who thought, oh gosh, this, how much are they making it for? You know, what, how much are you getting <laughs> do you paid? you really need this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was a no-brainer for me. And it comes out very well received, puts her on the map yeah. firmly. And how did she then step in for Selma? Well, you know, as, as we've talked about, my journey with Selma had begun in 2007. It began with the original director rejecting me. The, the feedback to my agent was David Oyelowo is not Dr. King. That was literally the, the, the feedback. But, you know, God had told me this thing, and, and when he speaks, you listen. And so I, I stuck with it, kept on keeping uh, tabs on, on the project. And by the time Lee cast me in 2010 and we still couldn't get it off the ground, you know, things just kind of went quiet. And in the meantime, I'd done Middle of Nowhere, as you say, Ava won Best Director at Sundance. And I felt I had been in the presence of a directorial genius. Mm -hmm. I genuinely felt that way. Was there something that made you feel that way specifically or just the general vibe? I think her understanding of the human condition, her... Very, I, I can't fully put words to what she is able to do when it comes to speaking the truth of a character from page to screen, but it's palpable, and you now see that. The world now sees that with Queen Sugar, with even her documentary, mm -hmm. 13th. You know, you see that she has such an incisive eye for the human condition, especially as it pertains to, to, to people of color. And it's something uh, people have asked me time and again, and I can't fully put words to it. It's, it's pretty much magical, in my opinion. And I felt that on Middle of Nowhere. And never more do you want that than with a project like Selma, where it's not just about a man, it's about a movement. And it's a, it's a film that had really struggled to find its voice. And this is a woman who has such a strong voice, not just as an artist, but as an African-American. And her dad grew up in Lowndes County, which is between Montgomery and Selma, which is exactly where that march took place. And her engagement with uh, justice, with inequality, with what it is to be a human being. There were just so many things about who she is that felt like she was the absolute right person to do this. And, you know, it, it, it took a bit of a fight. So, because basically you were now going to bat for her. Yes. I called Pathé up and said, uh, because they had made, in my opinion, the, the good decision to say, look, we, 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 this opportunity should go to an African-American. But ideally it should be an African-American director who has worked at a budget of around about $20 million. Well, that counts out like 99.5% <laughs> of all black directors in America. And we'd pretty much, you know, gone through some of those guys already. None of them were girls. None of them were, were ladies, mm -hmm. I should say. But it was, like I say, it was a no-brainer for me. And the initial resistance was on the basis of the fact that, you know, we had made Middle of Nowhere for $200,000. But I had to remind them that a certain Tom Hooper hadn't worked with massive budgets before they had him doing certain movies. And I think that was enough to sort of make them go, oh, okay, quick, oh, I guess we better watch the film. And they watched Middle of Nowhere, and thankfully they saw the light. You know, Ava is such a resourceful person. She did a brilliant thing. She said, okay, give me a budget. I will back into it. 
And so it immediately took away the excuse that for so many other directors had been the reason, not excuse, but the reason that they had had to walk away. And she literally recalibrated the script to fit the budget. And, you know, look, there's been much talk about who wrote Selma. And I can tell you for a fact that Ava DuVernay is the one that reshaped that script into what got made. Was this because there was some issue over the the rights or ability to use the actual Dr. King speeches? And so these that we hear you delivering mm. so powerfully in the movie are not actually, you know, they're the, they're the essence of what he was saying, but somebody had to write those. You're saying that was hard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The relationship I had with Coretta Scott King in the film was recalibrated by her. The original script, it was only a phone call. I never had any FaceTime with, mm -hmm. with Coretta Scott King. All the female characters were highly underdeveloped. You know, Annie Lee Cooper, the character that Lorraine Toussaint plays, the character that Tessa Thompson plays, they were, you know, they, they, they pretty much weren't there. The movement itself was highly underwritten. The, the, the film was pretty much about the combative political side of things between LBJ and Dr. Dr. King, and in earlier iterations of the script, LBJ was actually the lead character. Wow. Dr. King was a supporting character. So, you know, the, the script evolved over time, but Selma, as the film that you now see, is, you know, absolutely with a framework uh, that was laid by the original writer. But, but you know, that, that film is... Uh, a lot of films have a, a film by... This is a film by, <laughs> you know, in the true sense. Of course, there were several collaborators, but that, that film was birthed out of her brain. And it sounds like the making of it for you and maybe for everybody there, based on things that you've recounted, was sort of a spiritual experience in and of itself in the sense that, A, you're telling a story that obviously shaped the lives of a lot of people that are there make, telling the story, but also weird things that were happening mm. and you're now delivering speeches where essentially you, you felt from what I understand that you were you were channeling Dr. Kim. Yeah, I mean it's again, I think this is why Daniel Day Lewis and I and I hesitate to mention my name in in the same sentence as Daniel Day Lewis, but I think this is why you often find him hesitant about talking about the acting process because the minute you start talking about it, it's like a mist. It, it becomes like this thing where you go, "Okay, what does that mean?" You just you it's it's almost inevitable that you sound pretentious, but if you give yourself over enough to this endeavor, things happen that are a combination of character, script, and spirit that can lead to things the likes of which I felt, which is that there were weird days I had where, you know, I'd gained 30 pounds, I'd remained in his headspace enough, I, I'd stayed in character for pretty much two to three months, and I remember moments I was in the mirror brushing my teeth and I had to I had to come away from the mirror because I could no longer see myself I could only see him that's a weird feeling for a, a guy who's passed away a guy who spent 13 years of his life with his with his life being threatened his family being threatened and that's a that's a intense headspace to remain in I it, the the height of this for me was the day that we did the very last speech in the film and Dr. King had been warned severally that if he gives that speech on the, ca on the steps in Montgomery, he will be killed. And it was such an open space, several uh, vantage points for a sniper. And the day before I was going to give that speech, I thought I was going to die giving it. 
I can't fully explain to you why I felt that, but it was a very real feeling. And after the day we shot that scene, I was surprised I was still alive. Even saying that to you now, two, three years after having done it, it sounds odd, it sounds, you know, but it's how I felt. And further to that specific scene, I think, wasn't there something, I believe we're talking about the same scene, wasn't there a weird thing with the podium? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the day that we were going to be shooting that scene, the production designer called me, Mark Freeberg, and, and, and said, I've got to tell you, something happened. And I was like, okay, uh, don't tell me anything too crazy because I have to go and give this speech (laughs) today. And he said that that he had a podium that I was meant to give the speech from and he just didn't feel it was right. And Dexter Avenue Baptist Church is right there, right near the steps in Montgomery. And he went to the church and said, look, do you have anything? I'm not feeling this podium that we're going to be using. And they said that they had just found two days before in the basement the very pulpit from which Dr. King had given the speech on those steps in 1965. And so I gave that speech from the exact same podium. Which until two days earlier was was missing. N- n- yeah, it was just, it was in a basement <laughs> yeah. just gathering dust. That's amazing. So, you know, when I talk about the divine nature of that 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 journey for me, I it's, it's a real thing. I remember seeing it the first time it was shown. It was a weird day because they were doing that back to back with American Sniper, yeah. which are totally just such a jarring thing to have to see yes. back to back. But from that screening, I think it was obvious this was a very powerful, important movie. People were so impressed by your performance in particular. And then something that I don't want to harp on, but I feel like we have to discuss is Oscar nominations come out. Mm -hmm. And I wonder for you what you personally, before any of the other noise surrounding it came in, what did you make of that morning? I think the, the tricky thing with the side of our business, which is awards and the Oscars in particular, is that there's so much hype, there's so much talk, and rightly so, because it is the, the, height of celebration of of what we do in terms of movie making and almost inevitably when you are constantly in the conversation Mm -hmm. quote unquote Mm -hmm. you buy into it and for someone like me who had had little to no opportunity to be in the conversation Mm -hmm. and not only that but who I got to play in the film and how the film was being received Inevitably, you have high hopes, you know that being in that conversation and then going on to be nominated is significant for your life, for your career, for the film, for the audience's attention to the film. So when it didn't happen in a way that we had hoped, of course, it was disappointing, very disappointing, not least because, you know, in the intervening days, the constant refrain to my ears was you were robbed you were snubbed you were there and so something that is is such a beautiful part of your life actually getting this film made getting it made with people who you really love and have in your opinion in my opinion done the best version of the film for it to somehow take this weird corner into this negative space of robbed snubbed robbed snubbed robbed snubbed was a very hard thing to swallow but you know that's the way it went at that time but you know two years on the 
what that film is, what it represents, and how it has been received by the audience has very much shifted with time. And so, you know, that's the saving grace. And you had said that the president of the Academy, who is an African-American woman, Cheryl Bone Isaacs, had in the aftermath of this one, all this was blowing up because we should note this was the first of two consecutive years when there were no people of color nominated in the 20 acting slots that are available. She had called you in and, and the way you had phrased it was, quote, to talk about what went wrong then, close quote. I just wonder what your take is on the fact that there have been these two consecutive years where this happened and hopefully, you know, not more. But because I personally, I, I don't have a, a direct stake in it in the way that you did, but I have I've sort of agonized over it because on the one hand, I absolutely think you should have been nominated. I think you probably should have won. On the other hand, I look at the fact that Selma received the Best Picture nomination and that the Academy does have a an African-American president and that, you know, the number of the people who were not nominated in the last two years who could have been, have been in the past. And I just wonder, is it possible that there were just five performances that, you know, that they didn't dislike your performance, but there were five that they liked better or with the other 20 that it was, you know, that there's some explanation other than intolerance that could be to, that one could ascribe this to. And I just, because it's obviously taken over the whole community in a way, a conversation, I just wonder when you look at those contrasting, you know, facts on each side of this question, what is the takeaway? Is there another explanation other than intolerance that that could explain two years of this? Well, in, in relation to Selma in particular, I think notions of the depiction of LBJ in the film hurt us. And what that then segued into was a notion that there were inaccuracies in the depiction of uh, of that character in particular, and therefore the film's narrative as a whole. It's actually funny, this very morning, a friend of mine sent me an article, and you can, ver- you can verify this, because uh, <laughs> just in case people think uh, that I've... Uh, I'm kind of, that that literally came in came in today, this and is uh, and and the, it says I'm not going to read the title. Can I read the title? You can read okay, the title. Right. I'm not going to read the, the title. The title says Selma beats Imitation Game in historical accuracy chart. So yeah, it's a Sky News. Okay, and uh, it says according to the website, information is beautiful. Uh, Martin Luther King's 2014 biopic is the most accurate Oscar contender in recent history. The website published a scene-by-scene breakdown of 14 Hollywood films, giving each one a percentage on the widely contested based-on-a-true-story mm-hmm. claim. The story finds that liberties taken by filmmakers to portray moments in history vary greatly from film to film. In quotes, it says, This movie painstakingly recreates events as they happened, the website wrote of Ava DuVernay's drama, mm-hmm. Selma. So... You know, of every film, of the 14 films, and people can go to <laughs> Information is Beautiful and see what the other films are, Selma got 100% in terms of accuracy. But now, it's it's one website's opinion. But, you know, I I know for a fact that we didn't go out of our way 
to be salacious towards LBJ, and it was an attack on the film. You know, when people went after, criticize it for for, for for the the notion of accuracy, and uh, you know, I heard your podcast with with Jessica Chastain, and um, you, but you guys were talking about Zero Dark Thirty. Yes. Oh, yeah. And you know, I I heard her saying that she wanted to murder everyone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, something she said that that I understand, but you know, I don't know to be actually necessarily true is you know she was saying of of Catherine Bigelow that you know maybe the attacks on the film would not have remained as harmful if Catherine had come out and 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 defended the film well Ava did and she was deemed strident and defensive those were literally the phrases used in relation to to her so you know I think I think it's tough when you make a film as a woman I really do I think it's the defenders for the work thin on the ground. I think that it's it's just harder to get your due. And I think that there is hemispherically, you know, those two films inhabit the same kind of situation. One, one of the most interesting things that I heard you say, which was at the Santa Barbara film festival when where i was there the night you were being honored was that it's not that people of color are not ever honored by the academy it's that it tends to be for roles in which they are subservient i think was the the word you used you know it 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 generally is held up i think by the by the record obviously but it's just such a difficult thing again stepping out of this just as a guy who doesn't have a personal i'm not i don't have a vote i'm not a contender when you think about the fact, because I've heard both sides of this argument, that the result of these two years of Oscar So White, you know, as it's been called, is is that there's sort of a sense that maybe older white members might be a little bit out of touch with this sort of issue. And then they counter, though, and they say, wait a minute, who do you think was making it possible for the Sidney Poitier movies to get made? Who do you think was supporting the Dr. King marches in the 60s from Hollywood, all of that stuff. And so I am just so torn myself over it. And I, 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 again, have no stake. So I wonder if it's something that you continue to think about or if you just have to, I guess, just go on with your with your life. But it would it would it does bother me to think about just the question about it. I think if you put accolades and the Academy aside for a moment, I think, you know, the, the thing that Everyone, I think, has arrived at, not everyone, but most people have arrived at as a, as a, a true notion is the fact that the Academy is not to blame. There is an industry issue here. We've got to look at why a film like Selma is so hard to get made. Why films where you have black protagonists that are not set within a historical world are tougher to get made. Why is it that, you know, the normalization of black life, black relationships, doesn't have the platform that, in my opinion, it should outside of deprivation, outside of, you know, either being a gang member, a crack mom, a slave, uh, you know, all these things that are not untrue 
But there is so much more complexity to life in general, let alone black life specifically. And I think it's that. That's what we should be looking at, is why is it that the Academy have more opportunities to celebrate those kinds of roles than what Benedict Cumberbatch gets to do in Imitation Game or Eddie Redmayne gets to do in uh, The Theory. These characters exist. These individuals exist, you know. Do you lend any... What do you make of the... And we, I talked to, I think, the most commercially successful African-American filmmaker, Tyler Perry, about this idea that you referred to earlier, quote-unquote, black films don't travel. Is the root of the problem, perhaps, that the studios, who I think would make any movie that they think is going to make a lot of money, mm-hmm. that they feel that, that, in other words, that that's their paramount concern, that they look at this and that, unfortunately, and I, I don't... I want. I. I don't. We could guess why, but in Asia, whether you're Denzel Washington or anybody who you know, one of the few African American people who's given opportunities to make big blockbusters in this country and and earn that right, and they do well here, but they don't make Tyler Perry's movies. Don't make money in Asia, which is now an increasingly large part of the marketplace when you go out there with for worldwide sales. Is the issue in a way why why some of these other countries will not turn out for movies with black protagonists it's supply and demand if you you know you cultivate you cultivate the audience's appetite when coca-cola first came out i can guarantee you the first people who drank it pursed their lips had a weird (laughs) sensation in their noses and their eyes watered and you gain a fan base and you know and before you know it Coca-Cola is the drink. The point I'm, I'm making there is that Hollywood is a highly influential cultural bellwether. And if you are deciding on who is culturally of more value than not by who you're putting in front of the camera and behind the camera, you are going to start forming habits in the audience that become a self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. you know when i told my son i was going to do queen of cartway mm-hmm. a disney movie he immediately said are you going to be playing the best friend that was his instant reaction to me telling him i was doing a, a disney movie and that's a byproduct of what he has seen not who he sees in life mm-hmm. In, in terms of his dad, and not in terms of who he thinks of himself to be. But that's how, you know, the culture of film has influenced the, the culture of life, mm-hmm. in a sense. And so I'm not for one second saying that Asia is going to change its viewing habits overnight. But are we going to perpetuate it? Are we going to decide that the sexualization of women is the way to go? the objectification of women. That's, that's what we want to do. Are we going to say that the, the taking out of anyone who isn't white and male as a hero is what we want to subscribe to? Because for right now, that's what makes the money. Are we, if that's what we're saying, okay, that's 
fine, but you know, let's let's be let's be clear. Yeah, it's not very noble, but uh. it's 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 not, and it's disingenuous because you know I can almost guarantee. You, look, if why does Star Wars work in Asia? John Boyega is effectively the male lead in that film. They did not stay away. They do not stay away from Fast and Furious because you have a diverse cast. They don't. It's to do, with, you know, the spirit in which a thing is made is the spirit in which it's received. And if you are soft peddling around you, when you are doing, you know, the films I do, very quickly get politicized and called black movies. And the minute that happens to them, they feel niche. But if, you know, seeing as we've, we've, we've talked imitation game, you know, imitation game doesn't feel like, you, you don't go around saying that that's a white movie. <laughs> you know, you barely even talk about it as a period film. It's just a good movie. Mm -hmm. Same thing with King's Speech, but a United Kingdom or Selma, you know, they are immediately boxed and thereby politicized. And so often what I spend most of my time talking about at Junkets is diversity mm -hmm. as opposed to story and character and the filmmaker and how brilliant they are, you know, and that in and of itself makes it less palatable for an audience to just sit there and go, wow, what a great story. Right. And so until there, there, there is a degree of normalization that needs to take place. And that's what J.J. Abrams did in fighting for John Boyega to play that role. He had very real resistance. And then you now with God's... With God's, God's particle, particle. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, myself and Gugu Mbatha-Rora yeah. head up that film. And it had, they, they are roles that were were not written as black. They have nothing to do with race. And to be perfectly frank, because it's J.J. Abrams, I think for the audience, they know that they are not about to be Selmud or, 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 or whatever else. You know, and, and what I mean by that is that it immediately suggests that the film is for them. You know, and please, you, you know, in, in talking about, I love Selma. That film changed my life. I wouldn't change a single thing. But I think it is just not true to say that Asia is not open to to people of of color. I think it's about the films. I think it's about, you know, so often you'll see a new franchise and it'll be headed up by an unknown young white kid who no one knows or maybe they were in some TV show that they were brilliant at. It's, it's, you just don't see that. You just It takes someone like JJ going, okay, John, come do this. Okay, Gugu and David, come do this. It takes George going, okay, here's $50 million of my own money. No one else wants to do it. So I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we're still in a space where it takes individuals going, I'm going to stick my neck out, as opposed to it being something that our industry as a whole is just saying, you know, we're, we're going to make this normal because mm -hmm. it's a ref it reflects the life and the world we live in. So just here in the very much the home stretch, I, I want to talk about since Selma, you got an Emmy nomination for a great 
performance that I think you made before that in mm-hmm. Nightingale, just you, one one man show. And then here in September, this past September, two of your films premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. The first, which you just referred to in the United Kingdom, the second, Queen of Cotway. And I think there was a certain strategy, maybe as with all of these, but particularly with these two, about it's not coincidental you ended up with female directors. It's not coincidental that these are stories that deal with some of the, well, in the case of United Kingdom, the subject of race is at, at its center. Mm-hmm. Queen of Cotway, it is, but it's in it, it, sort of subtextually. But So I guess just how did you come to these two, and why are they so important in a sense just culturally, the, the, the discussions that they provoke or subtextually what people are going to take away from seeing them? Well, the, the reasons for which, in my opinion, they are important are also the reasons for which you hope they will become less important in the way I'm about to say they're important. They're important because they were made by female directors. They are important because they are showing black life in a context that we don't usually get to see. An 11-year-old girl from the slums of Cartway, who is the protagonist in a film made by the largest media company in the world, is pretty significant, in my opinion. And to see Africa depicted in a way that isn't through foreign eyes, but is very relatable and universal, I think, to Africa and beyond. And in terms of a United Kingdom, an amazing love story that, yes, is, has, a, has race as part of, of what's going on. But beyond that, it's just a great love story. And it's the kind of film, it's the kind of story that I wasn't getting to tell when I was in the UK. It's, it, this is the kind of film whereby if it existed, I may not have felt a need to come to America because it is like those period dramas I referred to earlier on. It's sweeping, it's, it's engaging, I, I like to think, and, and they're, they're complex characters who go through journeys that I think are relatable to anyone and everyone. So, and, you know, and, and incredibly well-reviewed, not only yeah. were they at the Toronto Film Festival, but London Film Festival, and yeah, and, I, and I'm just very proud as a, as a person of African descent to see Africa being depicted in a way that is beyond child soldiers and genocide and uh, poverty. Uh, and, and, you know, poverty is depicted in Queen of Cartway, but not in a debilitating way. It, it, you know, it talks about the triumph of the will. Yeah. It doesn't shy away from the difficulties, but, you know, it's still a film that I think everyone can relate to. So for all those reasons, I'm just intensely proud of the films. No, you're terrific in, in both. And I think Cotway, it is, people can lose sight of how, I believe, unprecedented it is for, for Disney to have done this project. It's just, there's no, there's nothing similar to it in its in its entire history that Disney has done I think it's a very radical film and you don't associate radical with Disney and I think (laughs) that's a shame it's a shame for them you know I've been having real conversations with them over there at Disney Mm -hmm. and they struggle with this they struggle with the fact that you know making great movies that can enter the awards conversation Mm -hmm. is a struggle for them because you know inherently someone like you 
Scott. Um, <laughs> uh, brace yourself. But when you, if this film is made uh, by Fox Searchlight, mm -hmm. A24, Focus, instantaneously it will go onto your list. I think in the way that, you know, other films do. If it's Disney, there's a side eye. There's a slight side of, okay, what is that going to be? What does that mean, Disney doing that? And it's a shame because we need companies, big and small, making films like this and it being celebrated as and when that happens. I know for a fact there is no film out there in the current season that is as unusual in terms of how this film came to be mm -hmm. and what it actually is. Mira Naya, this amazing female director who has weathered so many storms. You know, we, we're talking about female film directors mm -hmm. a lot at the moment, but this is someone who's been around for decades mm -hmm. doing this at the highest level. She plus Disney is like, what? What's going on there? <laughs> and then, okay, so, so Disney is going to do this, this true story, but it's in recent history. And, and there is no white savior character. And it's shot entirely in Africa. And, you know, Disney is going to give it all this backing. And everything we've been talking about in terms of the struggles has, you know, the, the butler didn't have any studio behind it, one of the, the big studios. Right. You know, it, 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 we struggled so hard to get Selma off the ground. And, you know, several of the other films that we, we've talked about, Red Tails, you know, no studio wanted to do that. This is an instance where Disney just went, we're making that, we're going to do that. What changed? Because, I mean, in another sense, just to add this year... Roger Ross Williams has this great documentary, Life Animated, mm. which they licensed footage for. That's not something they've ever really done, but it was about a story that they felt was important in the way that um, clearly they thought Queen of Cotway was on a larger level. And that, I don't know if you've had a chance to see that one yet, but it's, it's a great one. Just about a, a boy who is born with autism and a regressive form, but through the, through the power of seeing Disney movies with their exaggerated movements and dialogue and all that he's learned to function in the mm. world so they license disney doesn't license footage right they did that with you and and cotway there's no precedent of entirely principal cast of of people of color made in africa get, getting this kind of release all of that so i guess you hope things are changing but but the the final thing i will ask is that you're now doing othello here mm -hmm. in new york for the next two months yeah and i just think it's kind of a poetic thing when you think about the fact that 51 years ago the part you're playing was played by Lawrence olivier right mm -hmm. in blackface mm -hmm. and in 51 years in some ways we've not come at all far enough but mm -hmm. in in other senses it does give you know some degree of hope that maybe people are becoming a little more Enlightened. It's hard to say that when we've just done what we've done with our presidential election or whatever. <laughs> but I guess just your takeaway here, 10 years away, you're back on the stage, getting great reception for this. And maybe just here today, we've taken stock in the whole journey up to this point. Just what's your outlook at this time? I think it's all about individual responsibility. There's only so much you can do. And humanity is humanity. And the reason why we 
love making movies is not just to show the beauty of humanity, but the dark side of humanity. And that's what makes us us. And ultimately, that's kind of beautiful, the complexity of who we are. So we have moved forward and we constantly have indicators that we haven't moved forward enough. But, you know, the, the point I want to make about what you've just said uh, and what I'm alluding to when I talk about individual responsibility mm-hmm. is what actually moves the ball down the field is individual bravery. To quickly go back to Disney mm-hmm. and Queen of Cartway and representation, inclusion, diversity, all the buzzwords. Yeah. <laughs> the reason why Disney made Queen of Cartway is because of an executive there called Tendo Nagenda, who is of Ugandan descent and who has risen through the ranks and done incredible work there with films like Saving Mr. Banks and Cinderella and has earned the right to have his voice be meaningful within the company. And that's why Queen of Cartway got made. As a man of Ugandan descent, as a man of color, as an executive being given power, he can go into a company like that and say, guys, this is something that we shouldn't just do because it's something that is going to generate hundreds of millions of dollars. We have Star Wars. We have Marvel. We have... This is just a good movie to make. And I have been on three continents with that film now and seen the effect of that film in America, in Europe, in Africa, in Uganda itself. And even though the the world was not set alight by the box office, there are few films I've done that are as important as that film for holding a mirror up to societies that feel like no mirror is ever held up to them. No one knows who they are or what they're doing. And what they are and who they are is of any value whatsoever. And, you know, in, in, in our industry, we sometimes, especially in relation to what you and I are talking about now, you know, what we're doing here is we're talking about the first wave in a film's life you know, which is what involves box office, prognosticators. Did it succeed? Did it not? Did it... And then there's the actual life of a film. There's the actual fact that, you know, this thing is still going to be around 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. And it's going to be the reason why someone like my son is not going to say to their father, are you going to be playing the best friend? That's of massive Mm -hmm. value. And the fact that Ava DuVernay has gone from I Will Follow, made for $50,000, Middle of Nowhere, made for $200,000, Selma, made for $20 million, to Wrinkle in Time, which is being made for $120 million, is also what I mean by individual responsibility. If she hadn't put her money where her mouth is, four years ago, five years ago, shocking to think it's that recent. Yeah. She wouldn't be the, the, the only woman to have made a film at the budget level. Forget person of color, only woman to have made. And that 
is what I call individual responsibility. So her self-agency combined with a company like Disney going, okay, we're going to back that. Someone like J.J. Abrams going, okay, I'm going to back that. Someone like George Lucas saying, okay, I'm going to back that. Those are individuals and those are organizations who are deciding not to swallow the notion that China is not going to buy into a world as we see it to be and we think is good. And that, to me, is what is going to make the difference and is making the difference. So, you know, as long as individuals decide that I'm not going to pass the buck and if I'm not part of the solution, I'm part of the problem, I think that our journey towards progress will remain constant. Couldn't be a lot more eloquently said than that. You're terrific. I hope you know how much I respect you and I really appreciate you doing this. So thank you, David. Thanks for having me.